children, as we define it, under the age of 18, they might make up only one in five of the population in high-income countries like Canada or the U.S., but they make up to one in three of the world's population and up to half of the population in low-income countries. So they're a key stakeholder, and yet so often when we engage with business, we see that they're a neglected stakeholder. Welcome to Sustainability Leaders. I'm Michael Torrance, Chief Sustainability Officer with BMO Financial Group. On this show, we will talk with leading sustainability practitioners from the corporate, investor, academic, and NGO communities to explore how this rapidly evolving field of sustainability is impacting global investment, business practices, and our world. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. In 2019, UNICEF and Sustainalytics partnered to develop investor guidance on integrating children's rights into investment decision-making. The resulting guidance is directed at investors and ESG research providers interested in exploring how companies and investors can mitigate risks and identify opportunities that advance children's rights while generating both societal and upside financial benefits. It aims to help investors ensure that child rights impacts linked to business activities, do not constitute a blind spot within their approach to responsible investment and active ownership. Today, I'll be speaking with Titi Kessinen from Sustainalytics, a co-author of the report, and Simon Chorley of UNICEF, who is actively working with the investment community to apply the recommendations from the report. By way of background, Titi is responsible for coordinating Sustainalytics thematic engagements, She also works on proactive engagement projects, addressing specific ESG risks, opportunities, and impacts pertaining to business. Within Sustainalytics Engagement Services, she also has a particular topical expertise in water risks, children's rights, food, retail, and garment sectors. Before joining Sustainalytics, Titi was the head of stewardship and risk engagement and senior engagement manager at GES, having previously worked as a responsible investment analyst at the Cooperative Asset Management in Manchester, UK. She has 10 years of experience in responsible investment and active ownership. Simon Chorley is the International Programs Manager at UNICEF Canada. He leads the organization's engagement with the Canadian private sector on child-related ESG risks, with a specific focus on the financial, extractive, and garment sectors and supply chains. He has 13 years of experience in human rights and international development, having previously worked for an international anti-human trafficking organization in London. He was born in England and grew up in East Africa, holds a master's degree in international relations, and lives in Ontario. Thanks to you both for being with me today and speaking on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Looking forward to it. So first of all, Simon, I'm just going to start with you. Could you tell us a little bit about UNICEF? I mean, we've all heard about it and probably like me as children raised money at Halloween for UNICEF, but what does UNICEF do and what is the focus of the organization? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Michael. Yeah, I imagine most people, particularly in Canada and North America, will be familiar with UNICEF from the orange Halloween boxes and the trick-or-treat at everyone's doorstep. We don't do that physically anymore, although there's, there's plans for a virtual return, so keep an eye out on that. But no, UNICEF is the world's um, largest agency focusing on child rights and well-being. We're a United Nations agency. We have offices in 191 countries, 
and uh, we reach probably more children than any other organization in the world. Uh, we have strategic partnerships with uh, governments, businesses, civil society, and communities. And we currently have five strategic priorities which focus on education, health, child protection, climate change, and gender equality. So we're working with all kinds of stakeholders to ensure that child rights and well-being are promoted and upheld and integrated into every community in every country. And Titi, how about Sustainalytics? I know of Sustainalytics from you know being a really a world-leading ESG ratings company and all of the work that's done in that respect. Can you tell us about thematic research and, and what Sustainalytics does in this space? Sure, absolutely. Sustainalytics acquired GS last year, which is how I myself became part of the company. We now also offer engagement services, like you said, which is not something that was part of the Sustainalytics repertoire before, but now it is. Through having the engagement services, Sustainalytics has really become this one-stop shop where we leverage the data that we have from the research side and also our, our long engagement uh, expertise from the GS days to really enable investors through active ownership activities to become part of the solution and really through dialogues with companies, encourage them to improve their proactive and, and reactive ESG risk and opportunity management. And in terms of the thematic engagement specifically, what we do there is really try to identify a topical material, business relevant risks and also opportunities, which are at the same time global shared challenges where investors and companies alike should be and could be playing a role in contributing to a better future, I guess. We have around 15 different areas where we have the engagement available at the moment within the thematic engagement service. That's a dynamic list and we are always trying to respond to the new issues emerging in the world and also the in investor needs and interests in different areas. And thematic engagements cover all the different areas across E, S and G. And so why focus on children in the context of responsible investment? I mean, we're quite familiar with risks of child labor, for example, and supply chain issues. You know, but as we'll get into, your report goes much broader than that. What types of risks and impacts were you looking to try to target in this work? Yeah, so in terms of why we would look at children in the first place, I think what we were seeing earlier on in kind of around 2013 or so was that the way that this topic was covered in investment discourse or really was not really covered in, in the investment community besides child labor had made it quite obvious that there was little consideration of children's rights and that seemed like a blind spot. I thought that we should try to do something about a GS at the time because I felt like no one else was. And it was something that luckily the company agreed that I could take on and pursue. The, uh, the investor surveys that we had then carried out seemed to confirm that view that investors didn't have really much uh, much that they had underway at the time. So from the investor perspective, I really think that it's a relevant topic to consider and incorporate. What I what our surveys showed was that this was really a topic that was largely recognized as potentially material, but the problem was mainly that they weren't sure what do children's rights exactly entail and what is the link to business and financials. So in terms of your question about the risk, from the investor risk perspective, I would say that there are maybe two specific things that are particularly important to note. 
And those would be that firstly, children's rights is much more than just child labor. And secondly, that human rights impact assessments and policies do not automatically cover children's rights, which is a common misconception really. So this means that many impacts and risks, but also opportunities may be overlooked by investors. And for example, having a zero tolerance to child labor while not necessarily even being helpful, still leaves investors exposed to complicity to various other child rights risk in their portfolios unless they carry out proper assessment. And at the same time, such narrow focus might make some some of them to miss out on many positives and long-term opportunities that their relevant investors might be involved in. And on the point of human rights assessments and expectations, which many investors do have, there are so many risks and impacts connected to children because of their position and their unique vulnerabilities that business and investment activities that might not have a huge negative impact on adults, which human rights impact assessments typically consider, both those carried out by companies but also investors, they can really affect children. So this is, of course, on a high level, these, these two kind of overarching risks. And in the guidance, we illustrate more concrete, specific business risk and intersections with, with investments and companies. And I'm sure that Simon maybe has lots that he'd like to say about all these underappreciated factors as well. The focus for UNICEF is, is, is pretty obvious, but just to back up what was being said there, I mean, children, as we define it under the age of 18, they might make up only one in five of the population in high-income countries like Canada or the US, but they make up to one in three of the world's population and up to half of the population in low-income countries, for example, in, in Southern Africa or, or some parts of um, Southeast Asia. So they're a key stakeholder. And yet, so often when we engage with business, we we see that they're a neglected stakeholder, that they're not treated as a distinct stakeholder group with distinct rights, with distinct impacts that businesses may have on them, um, but with also with a unique uh, contribution to, to make to not just their community, but to their country and the economy as well. And so that neglected stakeholder group can actually pose a real risk to businesses and, and therefore to investors if those full ramifications are not uh, encapsulated and, and mitigated as part of a, a corporate response. So that was one of the many reasons why this was a great opportunity uh, to work with someone like Sustainalytics and develop this kind of guidance. So why look to the role of investors for a topic like this? I would assume that you know UNICEF, um, a lot of the dialogue that you'd have on a topic like this would be in respect of public policy. So what was the unique opportunity that presented itself with investors? For us as UNICEF, I think we really see investors as key, not just because of the influence that they have, but the directly, but also the indirect influence uh, that they have. We see, uh, as we talk to specific industries, we see that there are a couple of additional industries which can apply particular leverage. What we see is that if we want to reach a tipping point, like we have, for example, with climate change, and make this not just a, a nice add-on off the side of someone's desk, but part of core business, that we need to integrate child rights and well-being into the terms and conditions that project financing and leasing is provided with. And so that's one of the key reasons for us to look at investors. The other one is also around looking at the international norms and conventions that investors often use to guide their ESG uh, governance and to decide what are most material. A lot of those refer to and are based off international 
frameworks like the Sustainable Development Goals, which of the 169 indicators, 35 explicitly rely on progress or, uh, on children's rights uh, of the ILO conventions, 138 and 182 on child labor, uh, on the OECD guidelines, and on the UN guiding principles on business and human rights. And all of those require that businesses, including investors, pay particular attention to children's rights. And yet when we talk to companies and investors, a lot of them are not aware of that particular requirement to pay attention specifically to children. And so this is a key opportunity for us, a real gap in the market to help flesh out their human rights impact mitigation, uh, prevention and communication strategies as part of their due diligence uh, commitments. From the investor perspective, children's rights slot in perfectly with so many key concepts such as universal ownership, responsible investment, long-termism and fiduciary duties as well. Those are all issues that are quite inherently linked to ensuring that children are holistically appreciated and accounted for. And likewise, as Simon referred to the SDGs as well, many investors are currently seeking to align their practices with the SDGs and that they should really note the framework's numerous links to children's rights, which Simon said. So if they are to do with something on SDGs, children should be at the core of it. And with engagement being my personal area of expertise, I obviously think that there is huge investor potential in that area as well. And I'm confident that this is a topic which uh, businesses will be increasingly expected to demonstrate responsible behavior on, both by the public and policymakers as well. So investors would also benefit from assessing their exposure and proactively encouraging investee companies to stay ahead of the curve. And on this context, given the significant and long-reaching impacts on the development and also well-being of children that business can have, either for better or for worse, investors can really play an enormous role by engaging companies to adapt their practices and offerings to the needs of the child, not just to improve companies, but this also has the potential to influence what kind of consumers and digital citizens, for example, and ultimately future employees and decision makers, the companies that they invest in will have in the future. So let's maybe step back a little bit and, and talk about a definitional approach to children's rights. What are children's rights and where do they come from and how should businesses be thinking about what they mean? Sure. So children's rights have have always been around in some shape or form and have to some extent been codified ever since the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948. But it was only in 1989 that we had a fully codified set of uh, child rights under the UN Convention of the Rights of the Child. This is the most widely ratified human rights treaty in the world. A UNICEF is the only named organization in the convention. And in this uh, convention, it sets out a comprehensive framework of 42 substantive rights that children have to address their specific vulnerabilities and entitlements. And this includes uh, guiding principles around uh, the right to non-discrimination, uh, ensuring that the best interests of the child are always taken into account, the right to life, survival and development and also the respect for the views of the child. So making sure that they can participate and that their voices are heard in decisions that affect them, which obviously has a clear ramification for business and investor uh, stakeholder engagement. Um, as I said, it, it defines a child as anyone under the age of, of 18. And uh, it's, it's really one of the, the key landmark treaties that we have, which, which sets out child rights. 
last year marks the 30th anniversary of, of the CRC, the convention. And we've seen some impressive gains uh, for children over the past three decades. Uh, together, we've managed to half the mortality rate of children under five. Uh, we've almost half the proportion of children not getting enough of the right food to eat. And we've increased by nearly a third the proportion of the world's population that now have access to clean drinking water. Uh, but we still have huge challenges. You know, a quarter of a billion kids are still out of school. Um, the poorest girls in many countries are more at risk of, of child marriage than they were 30 years ago. Um, and, you know, it's an increasingly material issue for investors. Climate change is disproportionately affecting children. And that has not yet been fully taken into account uh, by the biggest contributors to, uh, to climate change and something that we need to address. So we've seen great progress, but we, we also have great challenges ahead of us in terms of, of realizing child rights. And whereas before it used to just really be the purview of, of, of governments, there's been an increasingly recognition, firstly with the Millennium Development Goals and now with the, the SDGs, there is a key role for the private sector to play uh, in, in realizing and supporting uh, those rights. And uh, that's something which uh, UNICEF is, is, along with our partners, is, is helping to lead the way on. You've developed a set of children's rights and business principles. Can you describe what the purpose of those are and what they say? Yeah, the children's rights and business principles were really a response to the UN guiding principles on business and human rights. And it came about with UNICEF uh, working together with the UN Global Compact and Save the Children to identify, okay, so we have these guiding principles on business and human rights, but what does this mean for kids? And so we consulted with uh, children, countries around the world, and with businesses and with decision makers. And as a result, we launched their principles a year later in, in 2012. There's 10 of them. Uh, the first principle is an overarching uh, one, which really kind of adapts the review framework and looks at how businesses can integrate children's rights into their policy commitments, due diligence procedures, and, and grievance mechanisms. And then principles two to nine really identify the key material areas of impact across the workplace, the marketplace, and the community. So in the workplace, there's obviously a focus uh, on child labor, but we, it goes beyond that. So uh, focusing on decent work for young workers and parents and caregivers. Another principle looks at child protection and safety, whether it's online or physically in the workplace. In the marketplace, we're looking at how our products and services um, developed and uh, delivered to, to children. Is that done in the best interests uh, of the child? And that's not just physical products and services for the financial sector. It could be also you know, the financial uh, services that they provide, you know, the terms and conditions they might place on you know, children's financial or young people's financial products, for example. And another principle looks at marketing and advertising. Is marketing and advertising of products um, appropriate and respect, respectful of, of children's rights? Or does it really look to maybe exploit children's vulnerability or uh, lack of maturity when it comes to decision making? And then finally, in the, the community space, uh, looking at the environmental impact and the disproportionate impacts of businesses on, on children in relation to their health and the environment. Um, also looking at security arrangements um, and when companies have to engage security personnel, whether it's um, government or, or private security, is that implemented with the best interests of the children? And then also looking at emergencies and in supporting governments and how uh, children are considered as part of that. 
So since uh, the launch of the principles in, in, in 2012, we have been working with companies and, and governments around the world to, to begin to implement that through uh, you know, a, a standard set of tools and, and resources, but then really working specifically with sectors on their specific material issues, impacts, and, and, and ESG factors. Yeah, no, that's, that's fascinating. In terms of unpacking that intersection between children's rights and business, you know, we talked a little bit about the UN guiding principles on business and human rights and the emphasis on the duty to respect human rights on the part of business and the due diligence elements that that entails. And you deal with this in your report. What are some of the key areas of that linkage between children's rights and the business community? The links are really going beyond child labor. I think, as, as we mentioned and has been referred to already, I mean, the latest estimates are that we have around 152 million children in child labor at the moment. You know, over 73 million of those are in hazardous work, which is particularly detrimental to their health and safety. You know, 25 million of those, again, are in forced labor within global supply chains, for example. And yet, if we look at the UN guiding principles, there is a commitment not just for governments to protect children, but also for companies to respect the rights of children. And also that when their rights are violated, that they have access to remedy. Those access to remedy or grievance mechanisms are accessible to children. And so as companies do their due diligence, as they identify their material issues, as investors look at what is most material from an ESG perspective, it's really looking at not just the general impacts around child labor or health and safety, but more the specific impacts as well that the sectors and the different companies may have. And that will vary from sector to sector and the guidance goes into some detail as to what that might look like. Examples of how uh, company activities can intersect with children's rights, of course, many obvious things are nutritional value of the foods that they produce, for example, or uh, robustness of their privacy policies, or just design of any of their products that children might come to touch. And also things like re- relocations of the communities to, to clear, clear the land for any big projects that might negatively affect the right to education. Like Simon said, air pollution might be more harmful, harmful to children than adults. And uh, things like employees' working conditions may have detrimental consequences to the well-being of their families. So even if you just look at your employees, not children directly, that's something to be looked at uh, as well. Marketing is uh, another area. Any kind of marketing may affect children in unintended ways. And then there's the fact that one in 500 employees consumes child sexual abuse material on their work computer, which should really give cause for companies in any industries to review the IT policies, including financials, obviously. But what I think is also important when we talk about these intersections is that children shouldn't just be as risks and victims and passive recipients, because companies can also play an instrumental role in empowering and educating children and supporting the fulfillment of their rights, not just avoiding doing any harm. This could actually lead to profit opportunities and a chance to build brand recognition and appreciation among children and their parents as well. This isn't something that everyone agrees or likes to think about it, but children are consumers and through appropriate products and services, which are marketed in a responsible manner, companies can actually both have a positive impact on childhood development, but also tap into a lucrative market. And in terms of specific investor activities on on areas other than children, children working in uh, children working child labor, 
assistant analytics, we have developed a thematic engagement focused on children's rights in media marketing, specifically to flag one area where companies face concrete risks, but can also play an important role in empowering and protecting children. And another good good example of expanding awareness of different child rights issues is the advisory committee, which is developing expectations for tech sector to combat child exploitation online, where I'm involved. But the real credit for that work really goes to Tracy Rembert from Christian Brothers Investment Services who's driving that initiative. So yeah, I think that's that's really the key to really bear in mind that it's, it's just so much more than child labor. And you've mentioned global supply chains. We just did another podcast on COVID response strategies and the risk that the focus on preserving global supply chains might come at the expense of considering human rights with respect to those supply chains. Can you elaborate a little bit more about what children's rights means in the supply chain context that would be relevant, particularly for consumers, but also for retailers and and other companies within that supply chain? Yeah, for sure. And I think the COVID pandemic is is throwing a, a spotlight on those exact issues that you mentioned. I think that too often when we look at global supply chains, we've taken a tier one compliance approach, a checkbox exercise where we just verify that there is no child labor at a direct supplier level and then move on. But you know, as we see the issues raised in response to the pandemic where workers are going without pay, where factories are being shut, where their health and safety is uh, in jeopardy. What we often still forget is the impact that that has on on the children. If we look, for example, at the garment sector, 70% of the workers in the garment industry tend to be women. They tend to be women with children. And so it's not just around child labor, but it's around things like, are they able to provide a living wage uh, so that they can support their children at home. Are they, does that then enable them to provide the children with the education that they need? Do they have access to the basic health services that they and their children need? Or do they then have to work additional hours or take on secondary employment in order to, uh, to meet those needs? If they are women working in, in, in their supply chains, do they have supportive uh, breastfeeding uh, environment if they were to give birth? You know, are there those kind of rooms and uh, facilities that they can make use of? Um, is there access to childcare? Is there access to water, sanitation and hygiene, particularly if they want to manage their uh, their menstrual health during long work shifts, for example? Is there also looking at the environmental impacts of uh, industry uh, down the supply chains and the effects that that has on the host communities uh, where those women and children are, are not just working, but also living? And so investors really need to have a a broad understanding of in order to avoid blind spots and open them up to potential repercussions of not having identified and and, and mitigated against those kind of risks. Let's turn now to the practical recommendations that you put forward and some of the conclusions that you drew out in your report. How do you think, based on the research that you've done and looking at this question, children's rights can be better integrated by businesses and investors? I think from UNICEF's perspective, we very much align with the UN guiding principles on business and human rights. So from a general perspective, there are three key things uh, that businesses can do. Firstly, is around integrate child rights into their policy commitment. So having that tone from the top, having it signed off by the highest level authority in the company, that yes, we identify and recognize that children have specific rights 
and face specific risks. And that is part of our overall sustainability strategy that we commit to uh, respecting and supporting uh, child rights and well-being across the organization. And that in turn will then you know, send the signal to investors that this is a priority, that the company is on the forefront of emerging human rights issues and trends. The second step is really around integrating into, into their due diligence approaches. So looking at identifying, preventing, mitigating, and communicating uh, the risks that their business and investment decisions might have on children and child rights and well-being. And then thirdly is really around access to remedy, so that if their rights are violated, making sure that businesses and investors do make grievance mechanisms and access to remedy accessible and responsive to children. So where, in, for example, in contexts where it's not appropriate for children to question people in positions of authority, or they might not be able to read or write or fill in a, a complaint form, it's taking those into account. By taking those three general steps, and we're just beginning to see this now, for example, with some Canadian companies, that's beginning to show leadership on the child rights issues and giving investors more confidence that these companies are really addressing all of their potential risks and impacts, but also identifying where they can contribute positively to the societies that they're operating in. As for the investors, I'd maybe summarize it as being about integration, risk management and positive impact. And we have a section dedicated to the specific role of investors and include some specific action points there for investors to to actually integrate in their operations. But if I just outline them briefly, the most obvious one maybe, but something that's easily forgotten is aligning investors' own policies and processes to ensure that children that their employees have or interact with are considered. So not just looking at what their investee companies have in place in this sense, but also making sure that their own policies are family friendly and uh, make sure that no harm is done. Another thing is, of course, explicitly acknowledging children in the responsible investment policy. Probably that fits most naturally in connection to human rights commitments, which many investors already incorporate in their policy statements. Another area is risk and impact assessment. That should also reflect children's rights considerations. Investors would really benefit from including specific children's rights indicators in their corporate risk screening and also when they're evaluating the ESG risks and performance of specific companies or potential companies to invest in. And more broadly as well, investors would be wise to identify companies and sectors and regions that are most at risk of children's rights breaches and if they find some and if they're assets located in those areas, they should apply additional due diligence to make sure that they are they are okay to be invested in before the, the investment is made. One other obvious measure is looking at what business the companies are in and uh, accordingly avoiding companies that are detrimental to children's rights and seeking to invest in companies that respect and support children's rights, either through responsible practices and or through their products and services. Again, coming from the engagement background, I would like to give a shout out to active ownership and advocacy, which can be a very powerful tool. And we'd really love to see investors systematically addressing children's rights in their efforts. And we're relevant discussing the topic in meetings with both potential investors and portfolio companies. Dialogues on this topic would really help investors evaluate companies' preparedness, 
in terms of assessing and managing child-related risks and opportunities, but they will also serve the purpose of reminding companies of the importance that investors place on children's rights. And uh, again, in the guidance documents, we include some specific suggesting questions that investors can, can just take with them into the meetings and apply where appropriate to the company in question. Another thing that I'd like to mention that if using an external investment manager or buying research or engagement services, investors should really request and ensure that their business partners consistently assess the risks and impacts related to children and reflect this in their offerings. It is a bit of a chicken and egg question because advanced methodologies and metrics on children's rights are largely yet to be developed. But investors creating such demand could really contribute over time to increased availability and quality of investor-relevant data on these issues, including the materiality aspect, which we think might be a deal breaker for many investors. Finally, uh, as always, there's power in numbers and collaboration is often a very effective and impactful tool. So we would really recommend investors to raise the issue of children's rights in interactions with their peers in the investment community as well. Just discuss the challenges, the solutions that you've, you've come up in response to the challenges, how to collaborate, what, what can be done and what can't be done to, to really try and find ways together. And you've just alluded to this, and one of the things I found most helpful about the report was were the checklists and assessment tools that you developed. Are you able to tell us a little bit about those tools that companies can utilize in evaluating these types of risks and opportunities? Sure. So I can maybe start. So from the investor's perspective and in terms of fitting that into our guidance, the thinking behind the checklist was that investors have a very important role to play to influence corporate practices. They can set clear expectations and raise awareness and improve standards among investee companies. And that's one great way to really put into practice the integration of children's rights. In a nutshell, we basically suggest that when investors are analyzing and engaging with companies, they should seek assurances that they have a risk-aware and responsible approach to children's rights. And uh, where that's not the case, then investors should use their leverage to encourage companies to put, put such in place. To that end, we included in the guidance a selection of criteria and questions that can be used by investors in an active dialogue or as a checklist for assessing companies. And the focus there is on issues that investors can use as proxies to determine the extent to which their investee companies adequately address children's rights. The questions fall under categories including management strategy and corporate leadership, risk and impact assessment and management, transparency and reporting, and external activities and stakeholder engagement. And more on all these areas can be found in the guidance. And in addition to those broad areas, we also included quite detailed appendices with industry-specific questions and indicators that will hopefully help investors assess the extent to which companies manage child-right risks in their supply chain, as well as in relation to specific industry contexts and issues like in, uh, information and communication technology, food marketing, and the extractive sector. And Simon might want to elaborate more on those uh, indicators. But really, the, while the checklist was primarily intended for investors to use in their dialogues with companies, but yeah, exactly, it's, it's also something that companies can, can use against mapping their own practices against. Yeah, Simon, it would be great if you could talk a little bit more about those indicators and just describe what they are and the different contexts that they've been developed for, and also maybe why they were selected and, and what sort of research or background information you used in developing them. Yeah, for sure. Our UNICEF's approach has been once we've 
develop general tools with key stakeholders. So, for example, a tool on, on policy commitments with, with Save the Children, a, a tool on impact assessments with the Danish Institute for Human Rights, which you know, is a recognized uh, leader in this field, and a tool on sustainability reporting along with the Global Reporting Initiative, or GRI, and how companies can integrate child reporting that way, is then really we, we had a look across global operations as to where, which industries we felt had the potential to impact child rights, both negatively and positively the most. And so once we had done that, we, we don't just want to develop something that people put on the shelf and, and then forget about. We want to develop it with the, the companies and the industries that will be using them. So that's where we went. That's how we gained traction. That's how we've 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 worked in partnership with the private sector and with the support of government. I might add as well, particularly um, here in Canada, uh, working alongside not just Canadian mining industry but also uh, the government of Canada in ensuring that uh, Canadian companies operating overseas fully respect and support uh, child rights uh, to the extent that they can. There's been a lot of support for that. Specifically for, for supply chains, I mean, beyond the, the general ones, which we've already talked about, there are specific indicators in, in the guidance, which uh, can be adapted and replicated across different uh, sectors and, and industries. But for example, you know, I'd already mentioned things like um, uh, maternity protection. So uh, what about the, um, do companies uh, look at the length of maternity leave provided by uh, the supplier? Uh, do they take into account kind of the average earnings across uh, maternity leave? You know, is there also the provision of paternity leave or more general parental leave? Uh, what are the health and safety protections uh, for uh, pregnant or nursing mothers, for example? Um, what are the uh, in guarantees around non-discrimination uh, if, if an employee is, is pregnant, for example? Uh, with breastfeeding support, um, again, yeah, making sure that they know that they're entitled to pay breastfeeding breaks. You know, in most countries, uh, that is now a legal right, and yet there is very little awareness uh, of that right, particularly in key economies like Bangladesh and Vietnam, uh, where some of the key garment sectors are. Um, is there adequate space for mothers to breastfeed? Um, is there adequate uh, facilities to store breast milk, for example? Um, is there and other issues around, like, for example, childcare? Uh, making sure that they have uh, access to affordable childcare so that they can work. Uh, those are just some of the, the indicators there, or some of the indicators um, which uh, the guidance um, suggests for investors to look at when um, approaching supply chains due diligence. What other recommendations would, did you have for investors and, and companies with respect to that aspect of human rights? I think there's, uh, we've, uh, related to the investor guidance, but separate from that as well, we've we've also just released a discussion paper around how you make operational grievance mechanisms fit for children. And for me, there are three key elements. Uh, the first is around accessibility. So making sure that, yeah, if there are investors, making sure that uh, companies are making them accessible to kids. If do, are companies doing the right baseline assessments and making sure that they know, for example, the level of literacy in the, in the host communities and basing any um, complaints procedure off that knowledge that they gain. So, for example, we know of Canadian companies who have uh, made sure that, um, you know, they have equal numbers of, of women and, and men who are in their community relations teams, that they have relationships with civil society organizations who could act as informal grievance mechanisms, that they convey information 
in non-written forms, whether it's uh, through radio broadcasts or through comic books, for example. There are lots of different ways. Secondly, is around do they make it responsive? So making sure that you know their grievance logs um, actually record that a grievance involves a child. You know, so many companies I speak to when I ask them, so do you disaggregate by age in your grievance log? And I haven't met any yet which have said, yes, we definitely do that. And so we've been working with several companies and we've had the first one, Canadian mining company and American Silver, who, who have now begun to do that and disaggregate by age and gender in terms of their grievance log. But that's key in terms of how companies respond to grievances in the host communities. And that's something that our investors really could be looking at and asking in terms of making sure that companies are taking these issues uh, seriously. And thirdly, is just as well as being accessible and responsive, is making them accountable. So how do you convey and follow up with vulnerable groups like women and children regarding their grievances without uh, endangering them to the possibility of repercussions for the fact that they have raised an issue? And so having those safeguarding procedures uh, in line there. Well, it's such an important aspect of the social side of sustainability and, and human rights, but it's one as we've pointed out, doesn't really get enough focus. So hopefully this does definitely trigger a renewed interest in this topic and really true integration of child rights in the broader scope of, of human rights. So thank you both for your time and participating in this podcast. And we look forward to seeing what you produce in the coming months and years. Thank you so much. Thank you. All the best. Thanks for listening to Sustainability Leaders. This podcast is presented by BMO Financial Group. To access all the resources we discussed in today's episode and to see our other podcasts, visit us at bmo.com forward slash sustainability leaders. You can listen and subscribe free to our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider, and we'll greatly appreciate a rating and review and any feedback that you might have. Our show and resources are produced with support from BMO's marketing team and Puddle Creative. Until next time, I'm Michael Torrance. Have a great week. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. This is not intended to serve as a complete analysis of every material fact regarding any company, industry, strategy, or security. This presentation may contain forward-looking statements. Investors are cautioned not to place undue reliance on such statements as actual results could vary. This presentation is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not intended as an endorsement of any specific investment product or service. Individual investors should consult with an investment, tax, and or legal professional about their personal situation. Past performance is not indicative of future results.